There's no evidence as to whether or not he actually paid this 10,000 francs, but he promised it after the end of the war. That's a fabulous tactic. Yeah. Isn't it? I haven't got it on me, but (laughs) if you help me out, I'll come back on the wars over and I'll pay you 10,000 francs. And welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, Prisoner of War, Escapes. With me, Dave, and... Me, Tony. So, uh, you know, this is an interesting one this week, actually, because we have one of our oldest and one of our probably rarest of forces in this, actually, that we've got Lieutenant Commander, fantastic name, Redvers Michael Pryor of the Royal Navy. Great name, isn't it? It's a great name. We don't feature Royal Navy often because, I mean, the pure nature of where they they fought their wars, there weren't very many prisoner wars actually taken. So the last one was Lister and Hammond back in Series 1, Episode 10 of that, and there hasn't been one since. So it's going to be a fantastic uh, story. This one is full of adventure. In fact, every possible escape story you could think of and method that you could think of features in this one escape so i I think it's a a fantastic adventure that's actually a true story so that makes it even more unbelievable he does take a lot of escape stereotype boxes doesn't he absolutely it's fantastic as you say lieutenant commander redvers michael Pryor. he was in the royal navy he actually served in the first world war yeah actually you wanted to pick up on a point here yes so looking through his report it showed uh, service from 1906 and yet he was born in 1893 which would have made him about 13 years old Mm. so I did a little bit of digging and actually back then you could serve as a cadet from 13 either working as a powder boy on the artillery guns or in various other roles like waiting and things like this on 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 ships in the catering corps but that actually continued right up to just before the second world war when when a number of young boys were lost in action I think to u-boat operations and made the navy reconsider taking those younger than 16 so really long service i mean he was nearly 49 years old when this particular event happened so Mm. you know he had served a long time in the royal navy well yes he had and he hadn't so we'll get into that it says that his royal naval service began in 1916 presumably as a cadet it doesn't clarify however i did look into this and do some research and he became a midshipman in 1912 Yep. Six years later, so about 19 years old. He served throughout the First World War, rising to lieutenant by the end of the war, right. and ended up actually retiring in 1924 as oh. lieutenant commander. Okay. Now, if you look carefully on his report, it does actually say his peacetime profession is rubber merchant. Ah, oh, yes, I did see that. That's what actually made me look deeper into his naval service, because like you, I noticed that it started in 1906 and wondered how he ended up as a rubber merchant. I still don't know how he ended up as a rubber <laughs> merchant, and it's not particularly relevant to this story however he did return to service in february 1940 having distinguished career from the first world war and for six years after that he returned to service in 1940 as commander of the anti-submarine trawler hms angle Oh, okay. Served on that for a month until March 1940. And from March until May 1940, he was on anti-submarine trawler Ruby. Then in June 1940, he actually served in the Dunkirk evacuation. Oh, now, it, doesn't, it doesn't clarify what ship he was on. I assume he was still on the Ruby. I couldn't find any detail on that at all. He actually received his DSC, the Distinguished Service Cross, for his actions in Dunkirk. I see. I could find the London Gazette citation for his awarding 
signing of the DSC, but I couldn't actually find a military citation. So I don't know what it was he did in Dunkirk to be awarded this. I would be delighted if anyone knows, and they're always welcome to get in touch with us to let us know. But beyond the fact that he received his DSC for his services in Dunkirk, I have no further information on that. Right. Moving forward to his capture, he was actually captured in August 1942 at Dieppe. Yep. Now, for even the most casual of followers of Second World War history, the name Dieppe has a bit of a resonance. Indeed, not being the most successful. I think we're looking at 50% casualties overall of, of everybody who landed. Yes, yeah, so more than more than 50% for dead, wounded and captured. This is, of course, a podcast about Second World War escapes, so we won't go into too much detail on Dieppe itself. I think it's only fair that we cover some detail since that was where he was captured. It is one of the major events of the war, for good or for ill. I mean, not dissimilar to Dunkirk. Kirk itself it's kind of a glorious failure look there's a lot of historiographical discussion and debate around Dieppe we're not going to go into that I think a yeah. broad overview of the raid itself is probably sufficient yes yeah. absolutely yeah. so Dieppe is a port in northern France in Normandy Normandy is crucial here because it is close to the eventual D-Day landing spots, but not so close as to be unnervingly. Obvious. So, yeah, yeah. O- obvious. It's, yeah. it's not a million miles from the Pas de Calais, which was the alternative location for a potential landing. And anyone who's familiar with Operation Fortitude will know why the Pas de Calais was an important diversion and played actually quite a crucial role in the success of D-Day itself. So the fact that it was in Normandy is important because it gave a sufficiently accurate reference point, but not so close as to give anything away. So it had a pretty similar topography to the five landing beaches of Utah, Omaha, Gold, Sword and Juno. Good man. There was a couple of points to the Dieppe raid. The first was to gather intel. Secondly, it was designed to raise allied morale, uh, which given the unmitigated disaster that the raid was, is perhaps almost laughable in its Mm. aim and it was also intended to show commitment to opening the second front to the Soviet Union who of course were taking the brunt of the and had done for the last year yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly over a year by that point so it was to show that commitment and of course the second front did open the following year with the invasion of Italy which didn't exactly cheer Stalin up but showed some form of commitment so Dieppe is something of a precursor to both Italy and D-Day itself especially D-Day I think it's fair to say yeah and this precursor factor is actually quite important to the general historiography of second world war but also to this escape itself which we will come back to dieppe raid itself was an amphibious landing anyone who's familiar with d-day will be fairly familiar with the concept of infantry coming off waterborne craft onto beaches yeah as i say it it wasn't successful it was a disaster in its own right more than half of the landing troops were dead wounded or captured within 10 hours i think about six thousand and over 3,000 were dead, wounded, or captured. And I think you had a figure for prisoners of war themselves, uh, actually. Yeah, n- n- 1,900 in total. 1,900. So, so exactly. Yeah, vast majority of, of those who were died, wounded, or captured were captured, actually, by the science of it, more than two, around about two-thirds. Indeed, and uh, all on the same day when it happened. So, yeah, as you say, all on the 19th. Hours. Yeah. So that is Dieppe. So that's why he was there. That is why he was there, as a member of the Royal Navy. Yeah. He says that he was in charge of the beach at Pourville Dieppe on the 19th of August 1942. I think, to be fair, realising that it was an unmitigated disaster, states that he considered it his duty to stay behind with the rear guard. We held the beach till our ammunition was exhausted. So Desperate times. He realises it's not going well. Yes, but stays anyway. Stays anyway. To be fair. So he does survive, but he does receive four wounds and is actually placed on a hospital train at the station at Dieppe. 
However, I can only assume that these four wounds weren't particularly major. They may have been flesh wounds or worse, but they, they can't have been too major given that he escaped within a day. Right. And actually escaped yes. from this train. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, stating that I escaped from the train about 100 hours the next morning, stating we were eight officers and a guard in our carriage, and when the other officers and the guards were asleep, the train had stopped. I escaped through the window. Now, I grant you I'm quite a tall and robust build, but I can't imagine getting through a window is particularly easy at any size or shape, and we don't know how tall Lieutenant Commander Redver's prior was. But if he was majorly wounded, I think we can safely rule that out, given that he's just climbed through a window. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, he states that he was not detected and that he managed to make his way to a nearby farm and was helped by the farmer, gave them clothing and 1,500 francs, which seems pretty generous, It's, it's very generous. I mean, I don't know how far 1,500 francs would get you, but bearing in mind, most of our escapers previously have stolen things during yes, the course yeah. of their escape. <laughs> I'm not sure too many of them worried about money other than buying train tickets. As I say, it seems extremely generous to me, and uh, I don't know what the exchange rate was back then either, but I'm sure he wasn't saying no to 1500 francs no but i mean money does feature in this repeatedly later so it, it, it does it does absolutely only two days later so we're talking about only three days after dieppe itself mm-hmm. when to be fair i imagine things were on fairly high alert at this stage oh yeah i mean the germans must have been moving reinforcements mm. whilst they might have quashed it on the beach they weren't to know that it was only a single attack yeah you know, was this the start of something so they had been piling troops into the area for sure yeah and certainly the the area of northern france must have been on high alert mm. and he is still in this area i mean he's, he's hiding out with a farmer and fair play to the farmer for helping him in the mm. first place given the general atmosphere of the time and nonetheless he says that he made his way to the nearby railway station bought a ticket for paris without any difficulty with no controls for identity on the train now this is actually quite unusual detail mm. particularly three years into the war mm, exactly i mean and the vast majority of escapes that involve trains often talk about the identity checks especially going to a major city like paris yeah it's not like he's going to a relatively minor or local town or something like that you know he's going to the capital of france so it's it's quite unusual that there aren't id checks at this stage nonetheless he has reached paris without being checked now this this is actually where it gets relatively interesting yes (laughs) because while on this train he gets talking to what he describes as an old french woman and asks if she knew of a place where he could go in paris as it turned out she was a servant to a government official in France and he tried, albeit unsuccessfully, to get some ID cards from this official. Now, while he was unsuccessful from this official in particular, the link was not unuseful because in actual fact, in the end, he gets ID from this official secretary. That's right. So it was worthwhile making this connection. A, a very lucky connection. Yes, I indeed. mean, we were assuming that he actually spoke French throughout this. I mean, it's, not, it's not confirmed, but he, no. was, he was captured with the Canadians, so perhaps he had some working knowledge of the French Mm -hmm. language to allow him to converse in the way that he did. As you say, there's there's no confirmed detail to it, but yeah, you have to make some assumption that there is at least working knowledge of it. As I say, that making that initial contact was extremely beneficial in that it eventually led to him receiving some identification, which as an escaper is extremely useful. But over and above that, he actually ended up staying with this old French woman, as he describes her, uh, for a couple of days in her flat in Paris. So not wanting to put this lady at risk, which is perfectly understandable. Anyone who assisted escape or evaders during the war, in fact, anyone who assisted any form of allied servicemen, whether that was escape and evaders, SOE, whatever, was putting their life at risk. Oh, completely. Um, So high risk. 
almost better than average chance of being lined up against the wall and shot. Mm. So uh, he didn't want to put her at risk, which is perfectly fair. But as I said, he um, had already made contact with the secretary of this government official who did help him, but also asked for 10,000 francs, which seems steep. Not least because he only had 1,500. Yep. There's no evidence as to whether or not he actually paid this 10,000 francs, but he promised it after the end of the war. That's a fabulous tactic. Yeah. Isn't it? I haven't got it on me, but (laughs) if you help me out, I'll come back on the wars over and I'll pay you 10,000 francs. But not uncommon, actually. Really? Yeah, it crops up quite a lot. So having got hold of an ID card from this secretary, he made his way south travelling from Paris to Bordeaux and then continuing on by train and then uh, going by foot to the line of demarcation. So having made his way to the line of demarcation, he then actually stayed the night at the chateau. It states here that he made his way across the line of demarcation through the fields and woods. Now it's unclear whether that's the grounds of the chateau or or the general surrounding area and whether the chateau lay on either side of the line of demarcation. It was not unknown for properties to lie on either side. They could of course be used for that purpose if the owner was amenable to such purposes. Mm -hmm. It is left a little bit unclear in this report but that may be intentional given that this would be a form of escape intel to be used for future escapes. So it may be that the purpose of this report that this intelligence was actually used for broader purposes but kept fairly brief of course yeah for this report interestingly and this perhaps reconfirms what i've kind of just said he actually states that he only saw one german patrol on the road on a bicycle however he'd been told that the crossing was easier by day than by night because then the border was guarded by dogs and men so having crossed the line of demarcation into Vichy France, unoccupied France, whatever you want to call it, he states that he was challenged by a French soldier who asked for his identity papers, which presumably got from the secretary earlier. Mm. Now the soldier did say that these papers were false. But then left them. <laughs> but, then, but then left them, exactly. I, I wanted to pick up on that briefly actually, because I find this quite interesting, because in a number of escapes we talk about papers, ID, etc. that are produced in camp. Yeah. Now, of course, this is not the case with him. He was never held in a prisoner war camp. He was put on a train to be taken to one, but escaped almost immediately from it. And, of course, as I say, was never held in the prison war camp at any stage. So the papers that he had are actually technically official. They're forged, but they're official papers. I see. Which he has, of course, obtained highly illegally from a government official by bribing the secretary to the tune of 10,000 francs, which he may or may not have paid after the war. We couldn't possibly comment. So yeah, I actually find it quite interesting that papers that are produced in camp often breeze through. And yet this official paper that is, as I say, albeit forged, came up against barriers. I thought that was quite an interesting contrast, uh, not least because, of course, uh, those who were in camp and those who were performing the forgeries often had the issue of constantly changing papers. Yeah, And so we're often struggling with that challenge to make sure that the papers that went out with the escaper were as up to date as possible. But I mean, particularly in this instance, in that you've got a French soldier who's made the challenge, Mm. stated that they are false, Mm -hmm. but has then left. And there there appears to be no repercussions of that at that moment in time. At that moment in time, although it does later state that he actually returned farther down the road. Of course. When challenged, asking who he was, the person he was with stated quite openly that he was a British soldier. Now, that's not necessarily unreasonable, given that they are technically an unoccupied France. So it wouldn't have been beyond the realms of possibility. It wasn't ridiculous to necessarily admit that they were a British officer. However, he does take them to the local lieutenant, the chief of police, who was less helpful. 
Yeah. was taken under guard to the gendarmerie and it states that the chief of police was violently anti-British and said that he'd knock me about because of the bad time the French had suffered after Dunkirk. I assume this is in reference to the shelling that Iran in North Africa, which took place in July 1940, so would be just after Dunkirk. Uh, I wondered. There's no explicit reference in the report other Mm. than the appalling time that the French had taken. It is unclear as to whether he did actually knock him about or whether it was just simply a threat. It comes across as a threat. It it? it comes across as a threat and he does kind of say that he was taken to military barracks where he was well treated and given food. I found this quite amusing actually because he was held briefly at a hospital in Fort de la Duchère and while in hospital he made several attempts to escape. Which is interesting because Mm. as you say he's under arrest but he's in a quote-unquote neutral country. Mm. He is being helped, isn't he? He's being fed, he's Mm. being moved around but he still attempts to escape Mm -hmm. several times. Yes, I'm going to return to a point that I've made a couple of times before, which is, in essence, there seems to be a certain type of person who escaped. There almost seemed to be a personality about an escaper. Now, that's not to say that all escapers were the same. They were often very different. Some were very outgoing, extrovert. Some were extremely introverted. There wasn't a type of person in that sense. But there seems to have been something innate, perhaps a, a certain type of drive or a certain type of desire or an inability to cope with captivity that drove people right. to escape. So even though he's being helped, maybe there was some frustration coming in. Mm-hmm. He's been independent. He's managed to get himself that far. Mm-hmm. It's now being seemingly held up, frustrated. Do you know what? I'll take matters into my own hands and I'm going to leg it. Mm-hmm. Sounds it, reasonable. Yeah, it's certainly not unknown. And as I say, there does seem to be a certain type of personality that was just driven to escape. And so, as I say, it's quite amusing that he, he is held in, in, in a hospital and despite this still makes repeated attempts to escape. And he's actually moved to Chamberon. And he's, he's moved there basically for making repeated attempts to escape. Well, that's right. I mean, I'm just, just looking through, you know, so we've got trying to run out of an x-ray room that had several doors and mm-hmm. he got locked in, bribing guards, funny enough, for 10,000 francs. Mm. This magical 10,000 francs comes up again, but he, <laughs> he was given away, so that bribery didn't work. Mm-hmm. He did obtain a French NCO uniform and tried to escape that way, but was recognised. He also, it looks like it, he ordered somebody to try and get out the camp in a laundry basket which was successful mm-hmm. by the look of it uh, mm-hmm. on the 30th September so that's what one two three four escapes by then and then it starts talking about tunneling so this is why I mean this adventure is great it's got, got yeah. jumping from trains escaping in laundry baskets tunneling there are some others that still come up because he's, he's by no means bribery. finished bribery I mean, yeah bribery you what's know? a good escape without a good bribery that's right you know so so you know he's by no means finished with his escaping attempts here so same time he arranged for a tunnel to be dug under a wall from the outside by civilians so somebody digging a tunnel into the camp yes. so they can then get out of the camp <laughs> that's a novel one that's yeah, a new one yeah I've not come across that before for. That's quite a good one, isn't it? That's right. And it was a result of all of those that he ended up being sent on to the next mm, camp. Yeah. Effectively as punishment for trying to get away from his friendly captors. Yeah. He must have been a nuisance. Do you know what? He didn't end there. No, actually, it doesn't end there. It's, no. it's brilliant because upon his arrival at Chamberon, he states, on arrival, I got under a, ro- a lorry in the hope of escaping. There was not enough room and it was also very hot, so I fell out and was met with a barrage of rifle fire. But not hit. But not hit. But not hit. So somebody Luckily. was shooting at him for trying to escape on the day of arrival at a new camp. Mm. That's impressive. Start as you mean to go on. Absolutely. So yeah, ha- having been fired upon but not hit, he was put into prison for 15 days presumably the solitary confinement and then later moved into a hospital in Grenoble 
Now, this is great detail because this it, almost completes the, the tick box of escape attempts. It does it? indeed. I love um, it. Because he states that in spite of the fact that there were two guards constantly on duty who looked in on me every five minutes, I still managed to foul through the window bars half through. I was then sent back to the camp before the job was complete. Now, that doesn't necessarily state that he was caught, just that he didn't finish the job in Correct. time. Classic escape there. Uh, no, I mean, you know, there's no escape story in history that doesn't in some way or shape or form involve filing through bars yeah. at some stage. It's just a classic and, of the genre. And it's a throwaway it? remark. He doesn't mention where he got the file from or no, anything. No. Just, oh, I filed through the bars. Gave it a go. Why yeah. not? Great man. So he was, of course, returned to Chambaron and it actually states that he ended up escaping from there. He doesn't actually go into a lot of detail about this. Well, he simply states that he managed to get around one of the guards who allowed us to get over the wire and out of the camp, which suggests to me that it was quite a friendly card. Hmm. And he made his way to Grenoble by train. Now, it states in the report that in Grenoble, arrangements were made for us to travel to Spain and the party of Allied personnel. I want to pick up on this one. Well, yeah, I was going to say, so I mean, previously, it's been quite common for prisoners to make their way to that part of France and then travel on into Spain. So if this was a, a fairly common route... Yes, so it, it certainly it is common for prisoners or evaders for that matter to make their way into unoccupied France. Most commonly they tended to head towards Marseille. Now there is a reason for that because that was the, the nerve centre, if you like, of an escape line. Right. which stretched all the way into the north of France and stretched all the way down to Gibraltar, via Spain, of course. Mm -hmm. So having received this help to travel into Spain, he made his way down to Perpignan, which is down near the Pyrenees-Spanish mm -hmm. border on the east coast, on the Mediterranean side of France. Again, I love this detail because he stayed in a hotel that was occupied by the Germans. <laughs> but we were quite safe as the Germans did not search or challenge any resident of the hotel, which is great. Convenient. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. From Perpignan, he made his way south by train to the Spanish frontier. They were challenged on the Spanish frontier, not by the Germans, but by the French, which is, again, ironic. They too inferred that the papers are false, yep. uh, which links back to what we said earlier. However, he does state quite an interesting bit of escape intelligence here, which is that there is some secret sign now affixed to identity cards that is different for each district and is promulgated in a blue book to the police. Which should have been very relevant. Cause, I mean, obviously this report was being done when he got back to the UK. The war is obviously still very much on. So this information would have been fed back into the intelligence agencies. We're talking January 1943 yeah. at this stage. So we're slap bang in the middle of the war. Yeah. Th this would be very pertinent and scary intelligence especially for the crossing of the border from france and technically neutral spain yeah because that was one of the key routes not just for escapers but for also a lot of evaders as well so we're talking about thousands of servicemen would have been taking this route so this was hugely pertinent bit of escape intelligence that he's feeding back here and again he, he kind of follows a bit of a route that becomes quite common for escapers who didn't necessarily have all the paperwork or immediately able to make contact with the right people upon arrival in spain now it is worth making a slight point that he crossed the Pyrenees here on the eastern side right. of the mountains because of course when you cross into that you head into Catalonia oh. which in Franco Spain of post Spanish Civil War was a hugely hostile area. To this day you still have some tensions in Catalonia that probably predate Franco's era but certainly were exacerbated by Franco. So if you're crossing into Catalonia you might have got people who supported the Allied servicemen but equally you might have ended up with officials who certainly did not. Yeah. The politics of the Spanish Civil War were still very live at this point. And although Spain was technically neutral, Franco 
was personally not. The politics of Franco-Spain even crops up in Operation Mincemeat, the man who never was. Oh, yes. They even used that politics to their advantage, knowing full well that the intelligence would go to the Germans. So it, it is all very pertinent. Yeah. And equally, if you crossed on the western side of the Pyrenees and headed down to Bilbao, you were ended up in the Basque area, which is almost, if not more, contentious than Catalonia. Uh, again, we're not going to go into the politics of that. But, no, but we, I think we can safely say the escape line through Spain had as many, if not more, challenges as it did getting through Vichy France and yeah. even into those neutral territories in the first instance. Exactly, and it certainly wasn't uncommon, as happened with prior here, for them to be arrested upon arrival in Spain and to then be held in a series of prisons that, for someone like me who's read hundreds, if not thousands, of these reports will re- instantly recognise names Figueres and Miranda, right. uh, which crop up a lot. They were also famously appalling conditions. Right. The Geneva Convention may or may not have been observed by Spain, but they didn't seem to put a great deal of effort in these particular two prisons I towards see. it. And in fact, he does actually say at the start of December, I was transferred to Miranda where conditions were appalling. There being about 4,000 people in the camp normally accommodating 1,000 he encouraged the whole camp to go on hunger strike in sympathy with the Polish internees whose embassy was doing nothing for them. This hunger strike lasted for a week and after which 60 Poles were released. Wow. So, you know, it is very much a live political area at this time and he's very active in that actually within the context in which he operated but he's quite open about how appalling the conditions are mm. equally as common upon arrival in a place like Miranda was for the British embassy in Madrid to start to intervene because the names would eventually filter through. Ah, so that's why he goes to Madrid. Exactly, yeah. And from Madrid, it was quite common to either head in the early days to Lisbon or south to Gibraltar, increasingly so south to Gibraltar. And that's precisely what Pryor does is they head south to Gibraltar and arriving back in the UK on the 20th of January as well. So that in and of itself is Pryor's escape, which if left alone there would make for a fascinating story. Oh, absolutely. But his story still doesn't end. His story does not end there. In June 1943, he actually ended up standing to become an MP for the Birmingham Aston seat, which came up for a by-election following the death of Colonel Edward Kellett, who was killed in action in Tunisia earlier that year. You see, I find this fascinating because mm. in Series 2, I think you touched on James Hardest, yeah. right, who stood whilst in the European Theatre of, mm. of Operations for a position in New Zealand. And mm-hmm. now we have someone else who's come back who's still on active service, mm-hmm. but has gone, I'm going to stand as an MP. Mm. So I did state in that episode that the New Zealand Parliament held a general election during the war but the British Parliament did not and and that is the case that absolutely is the case however this of course is a by-election which is for the uninitiated is is different from a general election it's a one-off election in, in a seat because That's a necessity it is a necessity of course however due to an electoral pact between the Conservatives Labour and Liberals during the war he effectively ran unopposed because the previous MP, Colonel Kellett, had been a Conservative MP for the area. He ran unopposed. Labour and Liberals did not put up any opposition. However, there was a representative from the Commonwealth Party and a local independent who were so effective that he ended up receiving over 72% of the vote. Nonetheless, come 1945 in the general election post-war... Now, I've not been able to work this out. He didn't stand in his own seat. He did stand, but not in his own seat, which is not particularly common. 
I don't know why he didn't stand in the same seat again. He ended up standing in Stratford West Ham, which is over East End of London, which is a very safe Labour seat to this day. There's no rhyme or reason as to why he didn't stand in his own seat. It did go Labour in 1945, so the opposition won the seat. There was, of course, a, a Labour landslide in 1945, so he may have sensed he was going to lose the seat anyway, but then why stand in the safe Labour seat? So, I mean, with him obviously standing when he came back from uh, mm. having escaped from Europe, I mean, he would have had some responsibilities as an MP, but he was still a military man. He was, he was still serving. And I believe, so. did he not uh, have some elements of D-Day? Yes, I believe he did. Do you want to touch upon uh, that? Well, the problem is with a number of these reports we have that we've got information on the escape, but the rest of their wartime career is a bit sketchy. Mm-hmm. You know, he already had the DSC when he made the escape. He was then awarded the DSO. He then got a bar to his DSC later in 1943. And then he was mentioned in dispatches in 45. But I believe I found a reference, but I couldn't back it up in too many places, that he'd actually been in, involved with the D-Day landings on Juno Beach. Okay. And I believe he might have been in control of elements of the beach okay. at Juno during D-Day. So interestingly, you know, so here's a man who goes back again, by which time he would have been into his 50s, mm-hmm whilst also a serving MP, whilst also in the Royal Navy. Mm -hmm. That's quite a character. Yeah. So all his parliamentary record really says for 43 and 44 is that due to military duties, he only spoke twice. Right. He was a bit more active in 1945, and he mainly spoke on military issues. Right. It wasn't uncommon for MPs to serve in the First World War as well. Churchill himself went over and served in the Western Front in the First World War. Well, even now, there are a large number of MPs who are ex-services. Yeah. Absolutely. I I want to pick up briefly, as I said, he only spoke a couple of times in 43 and 44. I do want to pick up briefly on his maiden speech, actually, because he makes reference to his escape and actually makes reference to the gathering of intelligence. It's a relatively short maiden speech. I'm not going to read it all, but I do want to pick out key points. He does talk extensively about his experience on the continent, about his service, what he has seen during his service. He makes reference to Dieppe, but also actually not so much to his escape, as in the getting away from the train as such, but he talks about his escape as in his travel through occupied France and occupied Europe and things he'd observed. And so, as I say, I'm going to pick out some key reference points in the speech itself. So he talks about the Nazis control a huge coastline from the North Cape to the south of Bordeaux, extending over a thousand miles. It has rarely been assaulted. A few attacks have been made upon it, such as those at Saint-Nazaire and Dieppe. Now he states here, all have been successful and have taught us many lessons which have been applied in North Africa, Sicily and Salerno. Now as I said, there's some debate as to whether Dieppe was successful or not. Yeah. Largely accepted to have been a disaster, but important lessons learned. I'm assuming that's what he's referencing to, because I don't think we could seriously call Dieppe a successful raid. But he does say, taught us many lessons which have been applied. Hmm. So I'm assuming that's what he means by successful. This wall has been built by the enemy in comparative peace and he uses the hinterland for rest camps for his divisions. Now again, I wanted to pick up on that because the fact that northern France was a relatively easy posting, let me put it this way, you'd rather Normandy than the eastern front, perhaps contributed to the success of D-Day. They were relatively softened up right. soldiers. Not to say they didn't fight hard, but they weren't as sharpened as the Eastern Front. As the Eastern front. Now, he, he talks a little bit about Goebbels' propaganda, etc., and I'm, I'm going to skip over that, but he then says, I had the good fortune to inspect a portion of this wall. It is strong, but in my view, it can be assaulted and breached by a determined, well-organised attack. Now, I want to pick up on that, because what we have here is a Dieppe survivor 
who was captured, taken prisoner of war, had made observations as a relatively senior officer, Mm -hmm. had escaped, returned, understood how to convey intelligence back to intelligence organisations, but also back to the military itself, and had then been elected as an MP, and was effectively feeding back intelligence directly to the Prime Minister and the government through the House of Commons. So this was a speech in the House this of Commons? This is a speech in the House of Commons. Do we know when exactly? It wouldn't have been long after he was elected, so we're talking about... Summer 1943. S- summer, you know, at the latest, maybe autumn. So he's standing up in the House of Commons in summer of 1943... And stating that he has inspected this wall and that a well-organised attack could breach it. He doesn't stop there. Here in this country we have thousands of men who are straining the leash to make an assault and are impatient to get to grips with the enemy. When we make our assault on this western wall we will require all our skill and experience. Let us get that skill by seeking out the enemy, by hammering him incessantly and by assaulting him in every direction and playing on his nerves not only by words but by deeds. Now to some extent I think he's kind of saying we should do more Dieppe raids here. Mm, yeah. um, he's certainly saying that we should be attacking them as often and as frequently as we can and as hard as we can. So there's an element of death by a thousand cuts here. Yeah. But he is, you know, he is talking about how this country is preparing for what came to be known as D-Day and that there are men who are straining to enact this attack. He does talk about people that he met on his escape, but specifically, when I was walking through France, so again, he's talking about his escape here, I was continually asked questions by working men and women who aided me at the risk, not only of their own lives, but the lives of their family as well. I was asked, when is your prime minister going to speak to us again? His words hearten us and give us strength to endure. Now, this is referencing back to the summer of 1940, three years previously, fight them on the beaches, all the fantastic speeches that he gave in the Commons, put out on radio. And of course, after three years of hard fighting of occupation and what have you, there's clearly a feeling that they needed more of this. But I thought it was interesting, but also fantastic that someone who's been on the ground in occupied France and has got back. The numbers of people who got back, whether you're talking about SOE, POWs, evaders, etc. It's not huge. Are not huge. And how many of them became MPs and were able to communicate directly to the government on their experience? Again, standing up in the House of Commons and making his case for what is needed in occupied Europe. There's two more points that I want to make. So having talked about his journey through occupied Europe, the people he's spoken to, the people he's met, the people who've helped him, he also talks about, he states in his speech, I converse with an Alsatian, not a dog, but someone from the Alsace region. Uh, region. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He was conscripted into the German army and sent to Russia in the campaign of 1941. He served in the military police and there in Russia he saw young women with babies murdered by the Gestapo. He saw 7,000 Jews lined up in front of a trench and mowed down. The dead and dying were thrown into the ditch, which was then filled up and used as a road. Now technically he is talking about the Einsatz group in here. But again, we have direct evidence of someone talking about the systematic murder of a race in Eastern Europe in the House of Commons. Now what we do know is that the Allied leadership, so I'm talking about not just the military leadership but the political leadership here across the Allies, they were aware of the concentration camps and the extermination camps. The decision was taken that the best way to counteract that was to end the war. Right, I see. There is a big debate around this. Precision bombing was not what it is now. The likelihood of Lancaster getting as far as Occupy Poland. Not possible. Not possible. But then being able to bomb railway lines to the precision required, it just isn't feasible. Certainly, they may have been able to bomb a camp, but that doesn't achieve anything better. As much as we do have evidence of an MP standing up and 
talking about what we now know went on. It would have been relatively new information in this time. The final point I want to raise from his maiden speech is he talks about thousands of our prisoners would have died but for the Red Cross parcels. Many criticisms have been unjustly levelled at the Red Cross but I can assure honourable members that they have saved many thousands of lives. Now it almost seems insane in the post-war analysis that anyone would have criticised the Red Cross because we now know the role that they played in keeping prisoners of war alive. Absolutely. We've talked on this podcast before about the need for calories that the provisions that were provided by the holding powers, and I'm not just talking about the Germans, but Italians and others, were certainly not sufficient. They were sufficient to keep you alive, but not to keep you from hunger. Yeah. So the role of the Red Cross was absolutely crucial. As I say, it seems almost insane that anyone would have criticised them as because we know how crucial their role was. But again, I think it is important that we see someone standing up and stating their case in 1943. Mm. Again, the war is live at this stage. He never became a prisoner of war in a prisoner of war camp, but he was a prisoner of war and he was willing to speak on behalf of those who were prisoners of war themselves and obviously were not in a position to speak in the Commons or publicly because they were being held at this time. So I, th- I think it's great to see the Red Cross parcels being mentioned here, but it's also really interesting to see that he took the opportunity in his maiden speech to talk about the Red Cross parcels. I mean, he does go on to talk about how we'll achieve final victory, but that, those were the key points I wanted to raise from his maiden speech because I thought actually he used it well. Uh, no, absolutely. That's really quite fundamental at that point in the war to be able to discuss so openly mm. his experiences. You know, that's that's brilliant. And then, of course, you know, he spent the rest of his days... Well, we he tried spent to find some time out. as a Kent councillor. Oh, did he? Yeah, so he, he, as I said, he lost his seat in 1945, but he did become a Kent councillor for a short period, I think from 1949. And then I understand he ended up going to the Channel Islands. Yeah, so he, I've got here, I'm very keen to find out what happens to these people. Yeah, he eventually passed away just over 71 years old in St. Lawrence in Jersey, which mm. is a rather lovely part of the world, actually. I'll have to take your word for it. I've yeah. never been on Forest. No, I'd love to is. visit. It is lovely. There ended his time. And uh, what a fascinating chap. I mean, it is just mm. everything that you want from an escape. I mean, he, he all rolled into one story. Served in the First World War, rose through the ranks, retired post-war, came back in his 40s uh, to serve king and country once again. He was at Dunkirk, he was at Dieppe, he became a prisoner of war. He escaped after only one day on a hospital train. He made his way through occupied and unoccupied France. He crossed the Pyrenees, he got into neutral Spain, was held in neutral Spain, only got out due to the intervention of the British ambassador and ended up in Gibraltar and arguably his post-escape career was just as fascinating as as, yeah, his, as the escape itself you know MP served at D-Day itself bar on his DSC as well yeah so. yeah uh, yeah lots of awards for gallantry yeah uh, an all-round good egg well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on Apple iTunes Google Podcast or indeed any of your favorite podcast platforms or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.